This week on Making Contact, just as a therapist, you know, I think how much of who I am is compensating for having been imprisoned. And then it breaks my heart when I think about these children who are being traumatized in ways that will impact their lives forever and being treated as despicable and despised and yelled at. Not only do I work every day within the undocumented community, I also depend very heavily on folks within the immigrant and undocumented community who face incredible state violence every day and whose humanity is questioned or directly attacked. <laughs> My dad didn't do nothing. He's not a criminal. So the government, <laughs> government, please put your heart, please. The panic and tears of 11-year-old Magdalena gripped world news as she pleaded with the U.S. government to release her father. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, raided several Mississippi food processing plants in August 2019, arresting nearly 700 workers. Her father was one of them. I need my dad, she sobbed. He's not a criminal. Thousands of U.S.-born and immigrant children and families are suffering under a broken immigration system fueled by racist, anti-immigrant rhetoric and designed to treat immigrants and refugees as criminals. Administration lawyers argued in court that the U.S. government is not required to provide children in U.S. custody with clean water, toothbrushes, soap, or blankets. And Trump wants to hold immigrant families in detention indefinitely in violation of the Flores settlement mandating the prompt release of immigrant children. In this Women Rising radio program, we spoke with three courageous women organizing to stop the criminalization and to challenge inhumane policy toward migrants. Dr. Satsuki Ina co-founded Suru for Solidarity after seeing how today's immigrants are mistreated, just as her Japanese-American family was during World War II. Serena Adlerstein co-created Never Again Action in honor of Jews who were refused entry to the U.S. and sent back to their deaths in the Holocaust. And you'll hear from Debbie Machete, who co-founded the Hecate Society, bringing urgently needed help to desperate migrants stranded in Tijuana, Mexico. That was a 1937 recording of what is thought to be child star Shirley Temple singing a popular Japanese children's song, Kutsu Ganaru. Five years later, in 1942, the U.S. was at war with Japan, and President Franklin Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, forcibly relocating and imprisoning Japanese Americans in internment camps. Dr. Satsuki Ina was born in one of those camps. I asked my mother why she would have another baby in camp. And she said because they could never get the information about where they were going to be sent, how long they would be detained. The rumors were rampant in the prison camp. And one of the rumors was that uh, families were going to be separated. And if you had more children, 
you were less likely to be a family to be separated. They uh, struggled every day. And my mother wrote in her diary, I wonder if today's the day they're going to line us up and shoot us. And my mother also wrote in her diary, she said, I don't want my children to be Americans because they have a Japanese face. And so I thought about that for a long time, and I realized that my brother was born with hope and possibility, and I was a child born of despair and fear. Satsuki earned her Ph.D. in psychology, specializing in community trauma. When she was called to work with detained immigrant families at the U.S. border in 2014, she came face-to-face with her own childhood trauma. Five years ago, I received a phone call from a fourth-generation Japanese-American ACLU attorney in the National Prisons Project. His name was Carl Takei, and he was very distressed when he called me saying that he had just visited the Carnes Family Detention Facility in South Texas. And he wanted me to come because the families were about to be admitted. That was the beginning, and I returned several times to interview mothers and children who had just recently arrived after a grueling journey from their homes in Central America with their children and um, walked out of there each time heartbroken, and really angry. I have very heartrending stories that came out of my interviews with the mothers and children. One of them was a mother from Guatemala who I asked her why would she make that journey. She had a seven-year-old daughter and a nine-year-old son. And she said that her husband had been murdered by the gangs there, And uh, she was trying to survive by making tortillas and selling them on the street. And the gangs would come and take her money. And when she resisted, they would beat her. And the one day they told her that if she resisted again, they would take her son and make him a boy soldier. And they would take her daughter and make her a sex slave. And so that night, she was able to find a coyote that would guide her. And uh, they took what they could and left. And the coyote told her, when you see the man with the big hat, so these are the Border Patrol hats, put your hands out and just say asylum and they'll take care of you. They were lost for three days and no food and no water. And they were desperate when they finally saw the man with the hat. She put her hand out and said asylum and they handcuffed her. And they let the dog chase the little girl. And the mother said the little girl would wake up at night screaming in terror. And so I I asked the little girl, what wakes you up at night? And she looked at the mother, and the mother responded and said, she has nightmares about the dog coming at her face. So she tries to stay awake, and she can't sleep. I reached into my pocket for Kleenex, which I always carry with me. (laughs) And offered it to her to wipe her tears, and she said she didn't want it. So I remembered in that moment about paper-folding Kleenex to make a flower. So I stripped the edges and then folded it back and forth, and then you fold each one of the layers of the Kleenex to make this pretty little flower, and her eyes kind of lit up, and I tied it to her wrist, and 
in that moment, I saw the child in her, just delighted for this moment. And when we went outside, the other visitors and I went outside, I said, well, what about the water? And because I had noticed that the guards had water bottles hanging off their belts. And my translator said, look around. What do you see? And I looked around. I said, I don't know. What is all that equipment? He said, these are fracking machines surrounding the detention facility. And they have to shoot chemicals into the ground to get to the oil and contaminates the water. He said, you want to taste it? Because we could go back inside and there's a water fountain. I said, no, I didn't want to do that. They asked me to come back several times for different things. One was a hearing as a psychologist to speak against Carnes applying for child development certification so they could bypass the Flores Act. Another time was ACLU. They were organizing an informational rally. They asked me if I would come and speak. And I said, why would you want me to speak? And they said, you know, because as a Japanese-American, you have some history. <laughs> I thought, you're right. And I was standing on the stage during the rally, and it dawned on me that 40 miles away on the very same highway was Crystal City, Texas, the internment camp where I was held and with my mother and brother and separated from my father. And as I said that, I, I had tears, just the convergence at that moment. It had taken all these years. During World War II, Japanese-American citizens were forced to live in squalid barracks, while German prisoners of war were often treated better than the African-American soldiers fighting for the United States. Race and racist policies continued to influence U.S. immigration laws, and the Trump administration has made clear its preference for white European immigrants from nations like Norway while militarizing the U.S.-Mexico border and trying to ban Muslims. For us, it was we were spies and saboteurs rather than thugs and rapists, that we were a threat to the economic well-being of the country, that we were an unassimilable race. To stop family separation, mass incarceration, and to protest the Muslim travel ban, Satsuki Ina co-founded Tsuru for Solidarity. Tsuru, or crane in Japanese, is a bird and a symbol of peace and healing. When Tsuru put out a call for 10,000 folded origami cranes to be placed on the fence at the Dili Detention Center in Texas, word spread throughout the Japanese-American community. And in a short time, they collected 30,000 cranes, many with personal messages of hope and love. Spanish-language TV, Telemundo, broadcast their nonviolent direct action to the immigrant families held inside the detention center. I'm looking at these beautiful cranes, and I feel like these are wings of hope on these cranes, a message that the children and the families will get, that there are people on the outside who care, people like Japanese-Americans who understand what mass incarceration could mean, and that we're fighting for their release and freedom. Then Sudo for Solidarity took their protest to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, where 1,400 immigrant children were to be held without their parents. Fort Sill has a long history of unwarranted detentions and family separations, as a prison for Native Americans and later for Japanese Americans. At a press conference outside Fort Sill, they called on the U.S. government to stop repeating history. They were ordered to leave by a commander with the military police, 
who was caught on camera by Democracy Now! My name is Satsuki Ina. I'm a former child incarcerated during World War II. This is a photograph of me when I was imprisoned. You cannot protest on Fort Sill. You need to move across the street now. Jesus, were you going to make a statement? Yes. Apparently uh, you didn't hear what I said. I'm sorry, sir. Please you need to move today, now, right now. Move. Five days after we returned from the first Fort Sill incident when the MP was bellowing at us, I got a call from a reporter, and he said he was from Army News. We'd like to get a statement from you. And I said, a statement about what? And he said that Lieutenant Colonel Keyes has been suspended. And I said, okay, can I call you right back? And I hung up the phone and I went, yes. <laughs> and then I gathered myself and I said, okay, uh, here's the statement. We don't really need him to be punished, but we definitely want him to get training on how to be respectful. And it was reported in the Army News. Yes. Shortly after the protest at Fort Sill, Oklahoma's governor announced that the infamous base would not be used to detain immigrant children a victory for Tsudo for Solidarity and its allies in protecting the rights of immigrant children. So we're in it for the long haul. Our goal, Tsudo for Solidarity, is to shut down these camps, these prison facilities, and to use whatever voice and lend our moral authority to humanize the treatment of immigrants and refugees seeking safety in our country. There's a way we have credibility because of our history. Because never again is now, because we can't stand by while our government commits atrocities, which is exactly what it's doing. All my life, I've wondered what I would do if things got as awful as then. And now, trying to live up to what I hoped I would be. You're listening to Jewish protesters gathered outside ICE headquarters in San Francisco as part of a nationwide Jewish-American campaign to close the detention camps. Organized by Never Again Action, the campaign supports Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in her use of the term concentration camps to describe the places where families and children are detained. I'm here because I'm deeply disturbed by the fact the United States government is operating racially motivated concentration camps against migrant people with horrible sanitation conditions and inhumane conditions is especially disturbing given the obvious similarities between, you know, the early stages of the Holocaust and what's happening here and now. You know, Anne Frank and her sister weren't gassed, they weren't shot against a wall, they died because of unsanitary conditions in camps in Germany. And to imply that these aren't concentration camps and that it's, there's no relationship between those two things is to imply that Anne Frank wasn't a victim of the Holocaust and just, you know, was collateral damage to something that happened before the Holocaust. Never Again Action gained international visibility when they stood outside of the Wyatt Detention Center in Rhode Island in August 2019. A Wyatt prison officer drove his truck into the line of protesters, injuring several people. 
A never-again action organizer said, If they're willing to do that to us, we can't imagine the violence the ICE detainees behind those walls may be subject to every day. Serena Adlerstein, who is Jewish, is an organizer with Movimiento Cosecha, or Harvest Movement, a grassroots group to defend immigrant rights. She helped start Never Again Action to mobilize the Jewish community around the historical need to support immigrants and refugees. It really gave me a sense of Jewish community I didn't know that I was missing or wanted. And when I saw hundreds and thousands of Jewish people really standing up against the atrocities that are occurring right now to the immigrant community. It made me feel so proud to be Jewish and so connected to our culture and our history and our community. If I were alive in the 1930s in Germany, what would I have done and feeling very viscerally that I actually have a responsibility to answer that question now? And so I kind of made this Facebook post basically saying, hey, Jews, like, we should be occupying detention centers. And then my offhand Facebook post was actually the start of something that could be very large and powerful and has been. And I'm amazed and so, so grateful. But I think that it feels like we are in a moment where we're just forced to really reckon with our history and and need to act in order to not allow history to fully repeat itself. So the first action we had was in Elizabeth, New Jersey, outside of the Elizabeth Detention Center, which is a giant private detention center. And 36 people got arrested, most of whom were taking action in this way for the very first time and actually saying, we are going to do everything in our power in this moment to make sure that these concentration camps cannot do their daily violent work. And then from there, it just sparked this energy throughout the entire Jewish community. Never Again Action took its message directly to Washington, D.C., to the headquarters of the U.S. Homeland Security Department, in a way reminiscent of the 1960s free speech activist Mario Savio, who famously said, There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, and you've got to make it stop. Yeah, we really wanted to take this fight to the heart of the detention and deportation machine. And almost 100 people risked arrest, shutting down the Department of Homeland Security headquarters. And they had to send their employees home early because they just, no cars could get in or out for that four or five hours that we were blocking the building, actually preventing people from doing their jobs when doing their jobs means warehousing immigrants in incredibly inhumane conditions. And then just that's been happening all over the country in terms of people have been doing actions at detention centers in their own communities, at ICE offices in their own communities, at deportation courts. Throughout history, every law that we create is really based on whose life we do or do not value in terms of who is granted asylum, for example, which was actually a policy that was created 
because of the Holocaust, right? And having this country reckon with turning a boat of asylum seekers who were fleeing concentration camps in Europe, turning them away and then really reckoning with the fact that they turned them back to their death. And Movimiento Cosecha has launched something called the Dignity Plan, which would end all detention and deportation. So really dismantling the machine, you know, you can call that abolish ICE, a rallying cry that we all understand. The second kind of pillar of this platform that Kosech is calling for is to legalize all 11 million undocumented immigrants. And then the third part of this platform is actually reunifying families who've been separated. I can really feel so many people wanting to end this crisis and to prevent further death and devastation within the immigrant community because as Jews, we know where this leads. When I was only 20, I crossed the burning border. I came to find a good life and brought my daughter here. When I came to America, I hoped life would be better for me and for my daughter. And here I worked for you. The border and borders worldwide are central to the debate about immigration policy. And while some are calling for walls to keep people out, Others view borders as artificial barriers, blocking the effective delivery of humanitarian aid to people who are fleeing for their lives. Devi Machete is a co-founder of the Hecate Society, a femme queer people of color collective. Hecate practices border resistance and helps migrants stuck in limbo at the U.S.-Mexico border. Devi identifies with migrants and refugees in a way that few others can. Her family crossed the border when her mother was pregnant with her. She and Hecate Society now work with a group called Contra Viento y Marea, Against All Odds, which operates a community garden, a free kitchen, and a donation center serving migrants stranded in Tijuana. Women Rising Radio interviewed Devi as she worked in the community garden. I was born in Phoenix, Arizona. My parents were undocumented. I grew up under Sheriff Joe Arpaio in Maricopa County. It was incredibly repressive at the time, and we experienced a lot of racism, a lot of structural racism, as well as just hostility from neighbors. Going to the park, for example, and white women being like, your children can't play with mine, and things like that, that were just like glaring. I would go to the grocery store with my mom, and she wouldn't speak English, and they would accuse me of shoplifting because they wanted us to leave. And so as a child, I remember being like, I know that this isn't about me shoplifting. What is it about? And I remember experiencing, for example, the neighbors and, and store owners saying to my mom, you know, you can't shop here because your kind isn't wanted here. It was a climate of an intense repression against Latinos. And I think even now it's, it's increasingly been hostile. Very early on, I started to realize that there was something seriously wrong with our society that would treat people differently based on their race. It wasn't about us, it was about the other person's hatred, right? And so 
early in middle school, I would already start competing for poetry slams and on the soccer field and on the softball field. I wanted to prove to the world that migrant families have so much to give and that we're incredible human beings and that we have so much potential and love. When I got to college and grad school, I began to really get involved with a lot of groups and organizations that were doing migrant justice work. And that's where I would say I took off from there. Hecate Society was formed pretty recently and I quit my job and decided that I wanted to pursue this lifestyle of community organizing, which is how I ended up in, in Tijuana and doing what I'm doing now. There is such a need for people to get food. <laughs> there is such a housing crisis. There's no access to any resources materially. The Contraviento y Marea, I'm with them and in solidarity still. Having this kitchen that we feed 250 people Monday through Saturday, and then we have the donation center and we give out everything from like toiletry kits to backpacks to sleeping bags, tents. We're doing that on every day. I'm here every day. I think it's really important work. Uh, you can see the difference in people's lives when you have migrants showing up who have just walked, some of them, 3,000 miles from El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, and they have nothing but a backpack on and they're asking for a hot meal and, you know, maybe a pair of shoes. To be able to help them has just really changed my life. Debbie doesn't have confidence in the U.S. government's ability or willingness to develop fair and just immigration policy and she sees the government's collusion with private prison corporations as a serious obstacle to immigration reform. Assuming that the state, that the U.S., can manage migration patterns in a way that's fair and will be humane, I think, is, is a mistake. I think when we have so much power concentrated in the hands of the state that they are going to repress and kill and perpetrate violence on migrants and refugees. I believe we should abolish ICE, but I don't think that goes far enough. I think that in particular it's, it's heinous that we're putting women and children in immigrant detention centers and that they're criminalized because there's private prison industries that are making billions of dollars off of that incarceration. Fundamentally, the collusion between the U.S. government and private prisons that in itself is the definition of fascism. And I think we're seeing a rise of that kind of politicking, not just in the U.S., but in Europe, where they also have a migrant crisis. I think we need to collaborate transnationally to bring to the forefront human rights and not let states be able to decide borders and laws that are going to repress and, and hurt migrants and refugees all over the world. Dr. Satsuki Ina, Serena Adlerstein, and Debbie Machete agree that private for-profit detention centers are literally making a killing off the criminalization of immigrants. What I've learned is that these are private companies that are contract with the government. It's our tax dollars that are paying for the incarceration of these families. And the huge profit that is being made by these companies, CoreCivic, Geo Group, I was told by some of the volunteers that have been going on a regular basis and these social justice organizations that have done the research that whether the bed is filled or not, the facility in Dili has 2,400 beds. And the amount of dollars they get for every bed, not every occupied bed, but every bed every night, is phenomenal. 
the amount of money that is being made by these private corporations is outrageous. This land was made by dreamers and children of those dreamers. We came here for democracy and hope. Now all we have is And that's it for this Women's Desk edition of Making Contact, produced by Women Rising Radio. Special thanks to Survival Media, Bristol Recording, and Voice Studios, Lisa Rudman and Studio2Be, Emily Sachiko-Harris, and to Democracy Now! Music courtesy of Japan Polydor and Judy Collins. Women Rising Radio's producer is Lynn Feinerman, audio engineer Stephanie Welch, and I'm your host, Sandina Robbins. Thanks for listening. <laughs>